All right, well, welcome to God's Word Baptist Church this Wednesday evening. Hopefully you've been having a decent week, um, all things considered. <clears throat> um, and, you know, uh, it's been a bit of a challenging week for some. Uh, right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not looking at anybody, Eldridge. I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're on the edge of an evacuation zone for fires, it's a level three, level two. It's like, you know, you're sitting there going, okay, what do I do? Uh, it, it, a bit of a challenge, but you know, I'll tell you this. It's been a blessing. Uh, the Lord has, uh, as always, uh, taken care of us, uh, provided and protected. And, uh, very thankful for that. Um, you know, just, uh, personally for me as well and, and dealing with, uh, some, some health stuff that comes up. And it's just, it's just, it's great knowing that we can have confidence in the Lord, that we can have hope in Him. And, uh, we really don't have to get ourselves too worked up about stuff. So, um, you know, there's, there, there's a, there's definitely a praise with that. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll get uh, back into our study about uh, um, uh, change and uh, how to make lasting change in our life. But uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time, and thank you again, Lord, for an opportunity to be here tonight. And Lord, I just uh, thank you for all of the blessings uh, that you've uh, given to us, uh, just just even the start of this week, and and throughout our life, above all, the blessing of uh, salvation that you freely give and the word that uh, we have to guide and direct us and the Holy Spirit to lead us. And, and Lord, just uh, your love and your care and your compassion upon us. And Lord, I just pray that uh, we'll keep that in our uh, thoughts of our heart tonight, Lord, as we look to study about change, how we can change to in a way that pleases and honors you, that uh, gives you the praise and the glory for it. And uh, again, Lord, uh, has us um, fulfilling your will the way that you would desire us to. Lord, I just pray you'd be with me and speak through me tonight, uh, that uh, tonight, Lord, all of this would be for uh, your pleasure and uh, for uh, growth and maturity in us, that, Lord, uh, um, you would be honored with what we say and do. Thank you again, Lord, for um, just uh, being able to meet here tonight and still having that freedom. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as we get closer and closer to uh, the days that we are we're getting ready to vote, that, Lord, uh, we would just vote and um, that, Lord, we would uh, leave that in your hands. And that, Lord, um, I understand that we often receive the leaders that we uh, deserve as a nation. But, Lord, I just pray that... Uh, um, biblical truths and uh, biblical morality would prevail, and that, uh, Lord, we would just have um, a, uh, a leadership, Lord, that would begin to exemplify you and bring us back, that uh, we could actually have a revival in this country, uh, Lord, before you come back. And again, Lord, I just pray these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Just again, keep you, keep that in mind. We've got some voting material back there, some initiatives, uh, to help correct a couple of things, uh, that they put out there, um, and also some voter guides that, uh, little pamphlets that you can grab one and then, uh, scan with your phone and kind of helps, uh, lead you into, uh, who's, uh, who's, uh, made statements, who is, uh, refused to answer, some things of that nature. So, Again, just want to make sure that uh, you've got the thing back there. We're not sponsoring or promoting any one candidate. Uh, what we say is uh, you vote according to Scripture, and uh, we leave it at that. So um, we're talking a little bit about uh, reproof because over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, we were talking about that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. And again, when it comes to this reproof and it comes to the idea of uh, bringing about conviction, showing where the fault is lying, showing where uh, we need to do that change in our life, uh, that conviction that comes upon us is, is very important. Uh, last week we were talking about that, uh, uh, you know, reproof is something that um, 
if you want to kind of define it a little bit further and what it does is it reproof seeks uh, to convict a person in a manner that's going to evidence what truth is. And what I mean by that is it's going to show where uh, where the fault is and how to fix the fault. Not to just say, okay, well, here's where you're wrong, and then not go to a point of, this is what is right, this is how you repair that. You know, reproof comes about and brings that and shows what, if you will, evidences what is truth. And it has a call, as we saw over there in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23, to turn, to repent, uh, to turn from such a behavior uh, away from it, and to turn towards a godly behavior that uh, is biblical in its nature, to turn towards God. A change that is specific to a heart attitude. And many times that's what uh, a lot of the issue is, is it's a heart attitude. Uh, we struggle with heart attitudes. Um, uh, that's where our thoughts originate. That's where behaviors originate. That's where words originate. Um, we've gone through all of this in scripture many times before, uh, but just to suffice it to say that if there's a problem in the heart, it's going to be manifest in how we speak, what we do, and how we think. So as we try to get, uh, uh, get a grasp on what God wants us to do, and we realize that uh, conviction has come upon us, that there is something that needs to change, the, the conviction has to become serious. Uh, if a person has conviction and then doesn't do anything about it and stops that in the corrective process, then that's called rebellion. So what happens is if somebody comes along, let's let's say, uh, points something out to you and says, hey, God says that's sin, and you look at it and the scripture says it's sin, and you're like, oh, and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and you go, oh, that's not good. And you, 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 you realize it's not, but then you go, Oh man, that, that really displeases God. I definitely shouldn't be doing it. Oh well. And you just keep doing it. That's, that's just full on rebellion against God. That's rebellion against his word. And, uh, uh God doesn't abide by that. Uh, God will bring correction into your life. Um, he corrects those whom he loves, right? He's going to chasten you. And, and, and for the most part, you know, uh, chastening does, uh, uh, provide certain things, uh, uh, for the corrective process. That is part of the corrective process when it occurs. Um, but if you are to a point of where, um, you just need a little bit of correction and you don't need to go that next step, then you receive that correction. Um, uh, an example, you know, the, <clears throat> Many times it used to be, you know, when a child would go to school and they would mess up in school, uh, there would be the punishment that would be at school, and then there would be a punishment that comes at home. And it was like, okay, well, that's kind of double dipping for the same crime. That's like being, um, you know, you know, having to go to, to court and pay a traffic fine, and then seven years later a cop comes to your door and arrests you for the same crime and throws you in jail. That, that, you, it, it doesn't work that way. That, 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 that's, if you will, something that, that God doesn't do. So if we respond to the corrective process where he says, this is against my will, this is against what you are supposed to do, here's the correction and here's the chastening that's going to do that, and we respond to that initial, then praise God for it. That way he doesn't have to bring more chastening into our life and more correction, and more chastening as he's trying to get us to turn from that behavior. And sometimes people have to have that. Sometimes people have to have the whole bus dropped on them for them to get the point. Some people, they only need just the slightest, like, oh, I'm not going to do that. So you want to be the person that is responsive to the Holy Spirit, responsive to when that conviction comes. Because we have to get to this point of, again, where with conviction we realize that sin is exceeding sinful. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. I want to start with Jeremiah chapter 2 this this evening, talking about this process of conviction. And and here's what can happen. 
The Lord can use anyone and anything in the process of convicting you of what is wrong. Up to and including animals, inanimate objects, people, believers, and unbelievers alike, right? Amen? (laughs) I mean, there are people in here that would testify that that God has used things that they're just like, whoa, no, mm mm-mm. You know, it was a clear message from God. Uh, You know, there's stuff in Scripture that makes it very clear. Uh, There are things that you find out that, uh, you know, even an unbeliever sometimes can look at it and just give that withering remark of where they look at you with that disappointment and they go, I thought you were a Christian. That should just absolutely drive us just a sword right through you. Because now you realize that you've you've done something that is against the witness of how Christ of what Christ has done, and that's an important thing for us to understand. But we have to realize that you know sin is a disobedience to God. Uh, uh, sin is a disobedience to the laws, the standards of what God has laid out. We have to treat sin exceedingly sinful. So when the conviction comes. We respond accordingly. I want you to notice what he talks about here to the nation of Israel. He's giving Israel some condemnation on what they have done regarding their idolatry, saying what's going to happen to them because of these things. I want you to notice what he says here in verse 19, though. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that thy fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Or that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. And he makes a very, you know, a, a, a direct statement saying, you don't fear me. And it's evidence because of what you've been doing. But here he gets to the point of where he says, even your own wickedness is going to begin to correct you and what you're doing is going to come about and is going to reprove you. It's going to bring about conviction in your life. Now, we, we've often talked about the, that part where we can just sear our conscience with that hot iron. And we just get to the point of where we're just, if you will, numb to the sin. But God is saying that even though they've gone numb to that, he's saying it's going to get to a point of where it will come out and it will just flat out say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Even the, I mean, he says this is, this is what happened. And many times this will happen in our own lives. We will have conviction that comes where the Holy Spirit is, is kind of saying, hey, that's sin. And we go, oh. And there's the conviction, we, if you will, there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in ourselves. We don't need somebody to come up and tell us that's sin. We don't need, a, a, you know, a, a, a Balaam's ass walking along the way telling us, hey, what are you doing? We don't need something like that. Because God is even pointing out with the nation of Israel, it's going to come back and it's going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. So we see that this this is necessary, this conviction process. Turn over to the book of Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to, again, see this. We kind of mentioned this in uh, a little bit last week, but it's it's an important principle for us to understand because we're talking about uh, specifically how is the Scripture going to be used in this process of correction? Because you cannot get the right corrective process if scripture is not used. You, if you use Time Life magazine for your corrective process, it's not going to be a permanent change. You use Freud, Rogers, June, uh, you name it. Whatever the newest brand of behavioral therapy there is that's out there, I guarantee you that it will only be short-lived. Because the real true correction comes when the heart responds correctly to the conviction. And then in order to respond correctly to the conviction, truth has to be evidence. So we find this here in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says in, uh, in verse 10, 
He says, uh, you know, he was talking about uh, walk as children of light over in there in verse 8. He says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Don't have fellowship with it. He says they're unfruitful. They're not going to bring about anything that is profitable to God. They're not going to bring anything that is for his gain, for his glory, for his honor, and for his praise. That's what we're talking about when we say profit, okay, and fruitfulness. So when we realize that those things with darkness are going to bring about nothing, he makes it clear, he says, I want you to reprove them. So when you encounter those things, you need to go through the process of saying, okay, is this biblical? And what do you do? In order to show what is biblical, you have to use what? The scripture. Yeah, Bible. Yeah, it's easy, right? It makes sense. Because we have to do it. Look at what he says here in verse 12. He says, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are uh, uh, done of them in secret, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Now, what is light? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does he call Jesus Christ in that passage? He calls him the Word of God, and he calls him the light. And we find the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So we find very clearly that God is showing us what is going to reprove it. What's going to make it manifest? So when the conviction comes, it's going to show us, hey, look, you, this is where the problem is, but this is what's the truth part of it. You've been telling yourself a lie for so long. Now here we see the truth. This is how you correct that lie and that deceit with what is truthful over here. Turn away from those things. Have no fellowship with those things. But with that reproof, as it's been made manifest what is truth, you're going to gravitate towards that. That's the repentance part. That's where we see that happening and occurring when it comes to this correction. You think about it, conviction in itself and even reproof and reprove are legal terms. And conviction, when you think about it in the, in the sense of a legal term, that's when a case has been brought against somebody that's a lawbreaker and has found them guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Now, I'll tell you this, a lot of people focus on the word guilt. And I will say the word guilt is often as misused as any other word in the English language. Because people will talk about, well, I just feel guilty about it. Mm, I don't think you're really using that word the way you're supposed to. Guilt means that you have been found guilty. In a court of law, you've been accused, the facts and the evidence have been brought, you're found guilty, you're convicted, you're a convict. Sentencing hasn't occurred yet, but you're guilty. You're guilty. Take a look at what scripture has to say about it. Go over to Leviticus chapter 5. And we talk about... Uh, um, conviction bringing about that, that concept in the understanding of I'm guilty. I'm guilty. This is where it becomes becomes extremely important. Because when conviction comes, as soon as conviction comes, many times, guess what happens? Out comes the excuses. But what about, and there's a lot of what about-isms. And then there's the, well, I did it because, or it's the woman that thou hast given me, God. Or it's the serpent that you created. We start blaming everyone else. We start making excuses with everything. And the problem is we don't take accountability for it. So you can't shake off being guilty. 
When you're found guilty in a court, you're found guilty in a court. That, 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 that sticks with you for a while. And when we realize that our sin has made us guilty before God, that's a, that was a big issue. Because with that guilt, guiltiness before God came the condemnation that we brought upon ourselves because of the actions that we did that was death. Death is what happens next. The wages of sin is death. And understanding that concept, we understand what salvation is about. We're saved from that death. Praise God. We're saved from those consequences. We're saved from those things. We don't, we don't have to concern ourselves any longer with those. And we live to please God and to, if you will, manifest Him and demonstrate His glory in everything that we do. But what we find here about this guilty problem, guilty issue is that people have a problem of just making excuses. In Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, If a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wished it not, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. There is no ignorance when it comes to God. Why? Because you go over to the book of Romans and it says that he wrote it on our hearts. We understand. We understand. And when it came to the Old Testament law, ignorance of the Old Testament law was not an excuse. Why was it not an excuse? Because they were supposed to keep that and know that and, if you will, write it on their doorposts and talk about it at the dinner table and at bedtime and when they got up and with their children and in the house and in the way and everywhere that they were that they had any business anywhere they were talking about the law of God because if the law of God was continually there coming out of their mouth because it was hidden in their heart it would keep them from those things of sin that was the intent that was the purpose and he says, look, even if they go, oh, I had, I didn't know. God says, you're still guilty. You're still guilty. Because God has made it very clear. Take a look at Numbers. Book of Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. <clears throat> I've dealt with a couple of individuals that have used that as an excuse when soul winning. What about the guy that's over there and, you know, and why do they always choose Africa? I don't know. What, are, what about the guy over there in Africa that, you know, has no contact with anybody and has no idea? And I'm like, he still knows what sin is. He still knows what sin is. You can't tell me they don't. Why is it that, uh, you know, we, before they have had any, hardly any contact with people, those tribes in the Amazon that uh, that killed Jim Elliot when he came to witness to him, uh, why why did they feel guilty about killing him? What, why why all of a sudden did they think that there was something that was said that was uh, against one of the women of the tribe and 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 started having issues and started taking offense? Well, part of that was because. They had a law that was written in their hearts. They knew things that were right and that were wrong. Well, praise God, the man that killed Jim Elliot became best friends with his son after he trusted Christ as his Savior. And they were friends till the day that man died. Only God could do that. The murderer of your father? becomes your best friend in Christ. That's only the shed blood of Christ that can do that. There is nothing else that can do that. No therapy on the face of the earth can do that. Numbers chapter 5 and in verse, uh, verse 5, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, 
Speaking of the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, that person be guilty. He's guilty. After that, we see in verse 7, he says, Then they shall confess their sin which they have done. And he shall recompense his trespass uh, with the principle thereof, and add unto the fifth part thereof, and give unto him whom he hath trespassed. Now, he makes it very clear about the restoration process, uh, the reconciliation process that goes that comes about. Okay, But I want you to notice here that it's the fact that that person has been found guilty. And this is what needs to happen when conviction comes. When conviction and reproof comes and it shows that we have erred and it shows what the truth of God is, there should be an overwhelming sense of guilt. I have violated God's word. I have violated God's standard. I have sinned against my Lord. That has to be there. If we brush that off, we're not understanding. We're not getting it. Why? Because we have to realize what an offense it is. How horrible it has become. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I'll explain this a little bit more here. Romans chapter 3. You ever try to cut corners in a process? You're trying to do something. You want to do it quicker. You You don't think you need to necessarily go through every single step. To get to that final step, which you know what you need to do, but you're going to just trim some of those, you know, seemingly redundant uh, 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 things away, and you're just going to like, mm, I'm just going to cut the corners on this process, take a shortcut, get there the quickest way I can. If you try to do that when you're doing change in your life, you're going to wind up with change that's pharisaical and won't stick. Because you bypass the important parts. Somebody comes and says, you sinned, and you go, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. And then you go to God and you go, God, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. And you just kind of leave it at that. You're kind of cutting out some important parts. Where's the repentance? Where's the turning? Where's the real conviction? Where's the searching and studying of the scriptures to find what the, the correct action is? How are you going to make it right? What are you going to do to prevent it from happening again? What radical amputation do you need to go about doing? So we, we find that there's certain things that have to happen and certain things that have to occur in order for, for this process to work. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 19 here, he says, <clears throat> And now we know that what things uh, soever the law saith, it, sh- it saith to them, <coughs> to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There's a reason why the law was there. There's a reason. Why? So that everybody, when they start making the excuses, God can go, ah, before you say that excuse, let me tell you what I say about this. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Well, I didn't know what the Bible said, Lord. Well, why didn't you? I gave it to you. I preserved it for you. I inspired it for you. Men and women died uh, uh, and gave their blood and, and, and bodies so that you would have one that you could have on your phone. That you could have in print. Then you can go get to the dollar store and get it for a dollar twenty-five. That made whatever (laughs) inflation. I mean, seriously. We take a look at that aspect of what God is doing. God is putting those things so that every excuse that we come up with to avoid dealing with the reproof, the conviction, it's just going to flat out stop you right there and say, nope, you're guilty. 
You try to find a way to wiggle out of it, and there's another verse that's right there. Yep, you're guilty. I, I love it, because God's like, okay, if you're going to try to finagle and wiggle, you, ever, you know that person that tries to finagle and wiggle out of every situation? You know, they're like, you know, trying to, you know, get around it as best as they can. Whatever way they can, whatever way they can talk their way out of it. James chapter, uh, uh, cha- James chapter two. <clears throat> James chapter two is the best way to handle this. Let God handle it. <clears throat> James chapter two. Verse 10, for whosoever keep the whole law and yet offended one point, he's guilty of all. All right, he's avoided this one. He's kind of like, well, I, you know, I'm kind of uh, offended there a little bit, but it's not that bad. It's like God says, nope, you're guilty of it all. You looked at a woman with lust. Yeah, you're, you're a murderer. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a blasphemer. You dishonored your parents. But all I did was, yeah, but God says you're guilty of it all. Well, why is that? Because that's how God views sin. God won't let one sin into heaven. This, this false doctrine that's running around, this humanistic Christianity, progressive Christianity garbage that's out there that's being promoted on a day-to-day basis of, hey, you know, God's going to go ahead and take, you know, you know, even the devil himself and he's going to have mercy upon him and he's going to allow him into heaven. No, he's not. I read the last book. That's scary. I read the part where it said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. He gets cast into the bottomless pit, and then he gets let out for a little bit, and then he's thrown in a lake of fire to burn forever, for eternity. Anyone who else whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life follows right along with him. Because they were judged according to their works. Judged right off of this verse, by the way. Where God says, well, I only, I, I only did that one thing, Lord. Well, in my book, you're guilty of all of it. Here's your sentence. Cast him in the lake of fire. That, you see, we have to get this understanding that that is how God views sin. If we don't get that part of the conviction process, then we're not going to be one of those people that responds like David. And it's thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin, 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 is, sin isn't going to, it isn't going to break us. You know, when we're convicted of sin, there should be a brokenness of heart. There should be a contrition of your spirit. You should drop to your knees and put your head on the ground and say, Oh my God, what have I done? Not calling his name in vain. There should be that. You know, we live in a day and age where sin is, is minimalized. Minimalized. It's, it's even just flat out denied. Oh, that's not sin. (laughs) You like show them five verses. And, And they're like, ah. Denied and minimalized. Oh, that's not that big of a deal. Like that whole idea with the white lie. I, I remember my mom had a, a book when she taught junior church. 
I can't remember the name of the, the kid that was in it, but there was this little kid, and he, he told this little white lie. Little white lie. And this is a cartoonish thing, and it was meant to show this principle, biblical principle. He told this little white lie, and as soon as it came out, he heard this pop. And he's like, what is that noise? And he turned around, and there on the ground is this little white little creature, little blob. It's like, hi. It's like, what are you? And he's like, I'm the lie you just told. He looks at it and goes, oh, it's not that bad. Pretty small. It's kind of cute. By the end of the book, the thing was so large it was busting out of the house. And the kid ran in and told his mom the truth. And the lie went away. Because he sought forgiveness. He sought forgiveness from God. He sought forgiveness from his mother, who he told the lie to. And, and, and he searched the house to see if there was any remnant of the white lie. And praise God that God's forgiveness and God's shed blood can cover all of that. But we should in no way, shape, or form ever minimalize it. We should never deny it. We have to accept the responsibility. That's part of what that reproof uh, uh, process is. You know, this, this idea of, of, of guiltiness is, is to bring about a realization of the need of forgiveness. So God creates emotions for a reason, right? We, we, we talked about, you know, uh, anger is meant to problem solve how you look at things. Anger boils up and you're like, okay, now I'm angry. Well, that's the moment for you, you know, again, slow to speech, slow to wrath. Okay, why am I angry? Oh, I have a right to be angry. Do I have a biblical right to be angry? What is it I'm angry about? Will my anger resolve anything? How do I communicate this? I mean, there's a lot of things that you have to go through with the anger process. Generally, people just skip that entire process and just go to be just rage. Say wrong things, do wrong things, think wrong things, and then just carry bitterness for the rest of their life. The same thing happens with guilt. Because guilt is a little bit of that mix of fear and, and, and some sadness in there. Because you know something's broken, you know something's wrong, and you're afraid of what's going to happen next. There's apprehension. There I say sometimes there's anxiety about it. And when that comes, you begin to realize, okay, I don't like these thoughts. Not a feeling. You might have a physical feeling of feeling like you want to throw up. Okay, That's your body telling you what you did was wrong. Even your flesh knows that. Okay, So when you get to that point, you realize something has happened. You then enter into this, you're supposed to, with that emotional state of guilt, you enter into that of, oh, I need to seek forgiveness. I have done something wrong. There's supposed to be a process with all of this. This is part of what guiltiness does to us. You know, and again, it's not, you don't need forgiveness of, if you will, uh, the emotional problem you're having. You don't need uh, 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 forgiveness of the, the 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 feeling that you have. You need forgiveness of the sin. You need forgiveness from God. You need forgiveness from the people that were were offended in it. You need forgiveness for everybody that it has touched, because we all know that sin just doesn't touch one person. It's like a cancer, it's like a disease, it's worse than the coronavirus. More contagious than Ebola and everything else that's out there. But what we begin to realize is we realize this is what these emotions are meant for us to do. 
If you ignore that emotional state and you just don't deal with it, that guiltiness will eventually become overriding anxiety and fear that will dominate your life and cause you to even do more sin. To either hide it or to do something even more stupid to try to erase it outside of biblical principles. So it has to be a realization of the need of forgiveness of sin. This is what conviction does. I'll give you a little bit of an example that comes from like a counseling case study. You know, we we deal a lot in this day and age about um, self-image. And uh, sometimes there will be people that will say that because of their poor self-image, that's why they behave the way that they behave. Okay? Well, there's a lot to be said about that. But a lot of it also has to deal with the fact that the person that is doing those things isn't responding in a biblical manner to what's being said to them. I don't know about you, but uh, in my 48 years of life, I've been put down a lot. People have told me fat. People have told me I'm ugly. People have called me other things. People have called me names that I'm like, eh. You know what? Uh, when I was younger, uh, it used to have an effect on me. Why? Because I didn't know how to approach it scripturally, biblically. When, when we get put down, we often go right into a wrong form of thinking, a sinful form of thinking. And what we respond, the way we respond is we respond to those lies as truth. When somebody's trying to put us down, whether it's in a bullying manner or an abusive manner, um, somebody says something to us in a certain way, we have a couple of ways we can respond. We can respond by withdrawing and just, you know, holding all of that in and, and, and just letting it eat at us like a cancer, which is sin, by the way. Or we can say, okay, what does God think? Now, I'm not talking about something that comes along and somebody says, uh, you know, I'm not talking about criticism, like you're at a job and your boss comes along and says, hmm, that's not the way I told you to do it. That, that's not abuse. That's not criticism that, 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 that you need to like, you know, respond negatively towards. That's, that's where you respond and go, oh, uh, I, I messed up. I need to fix this. I need to correct it. I need to fix it. I need to know how you want it done. And I will do it that way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, well, let's take a look. Let's go over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Perfect example of somebody that was being put down. They didn't like him. They didn't like his image. They didn't like who he was. They didn't like the way he looked. They didn't like anything about him. So what did they do? Verse uh, uh, 67, (coughs) Matthew chapter 26, verse uh, uh, 67, it says, Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palm of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Verbal and physical abuse. Assault with bodily fluid. Back then it wasn't big of a crime as it is today. And they had a lot more disease running around. <clears throat> but interestingly enough, how did Jesus Christ respond? Do you think it hurt his self-image? 
No. It didn't. Because when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mark chapter 12. Or, excuse me, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, parallel passage. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And in verse 65, it says, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and buffet him and say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. He was spit at, spit at, spit upon, verbally abused, and physically abused. Do you think that this diminished the way that Christ thought of himself? No, because he was already humble. He already knew that. See, if we already start off with humbleness of heart, those things are not going to affect us the way that the world intends it to, that the devil intends it to. We believe lies and we believe deceit and we'll believe that more than the truth. And, 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 and therein lies some of the problems. See, Jesus responded in the correct way. Uh, it, he didn't develop some sort of negative self-image about him. About him. There was no bitterness. There was no resentment that built up, which can happen. And, and this is just kind of, if you will, just kind of a, a case study. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You had to know I was going to tie this in here somehow. (laughs) Romans chapter 12. But in verse 4, it says, For we have many members in one body. Excuse me, not not verse 4, verse 14. Sorry. He says, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. By the way, this is the transformed mind. Take a look at what he says here in verse uh, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And I guarantee you, everybody jumps on the first part. It's not possible. <sighs> Do I need to take you to the verse where it says it's impossible with men, but it's possible with Christ? I mean, come on. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I love how God just sets us up for that. You know, we're like, oh, 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 he's given me a caveat. No, he hasn't. (laughs) Don't fall for it. He hasn't. Is it possible? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you don't know. God does. Christ does. He was spat on. He was physically hit. He was verbally abused. Yeah, he understands 100%. He understands 100%, and there was a different response than what we as the world would. You're like, well, I'm not God. I can't do that. you got to remember, Jesus Christ, was he, he put himself in the flesh for this purpose. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he then says, be you perfect and be you holy. It's a choice. That sanctified life is a choice. It's a choice. You can choose to live it or you can choose not to. And if you don't, be prepared for some chastening along the way. Because it will happen. Because the Lord chastens those whom he loves. I want to move to this topic of, um, just for a moment here, of uh, another excuse 
Turn over to First Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> Many times when conviction comes, reproof is there. It uh, clearly shows things that we need to change. Uh, many times people will say, well, it, 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 it's just impossible. You don't understand when, when, when that temptation comes, it's like I'm a totally different person or uh, I can't help myself. Uh, it just overwhelms me and I just succumb to it. This is exactly what we're talking about. That right there is a lie in itself that we have told ourselves. What you've done is you've just gone through the process of feeding the flesh more than you have been feeding the spirit. You've been walking a lot more in the fleshly paths and you're used to the fleshly paths than you are used to the spiritual paths. You got to hop off that path and go on to a new path. But it's different. Well, yeah, it's going to be different. But it's going to be hard. Well, yeah. But it's not impossible. But it can be done with Christ, right? He's given us the Word of God. He's given us His Holy Spirit. We've seen all of that so far to this point. All Scripture is profitable for that end. Do we believe it? Look, I go back to the very beginning. If you don't believe God's word, change is going to be really hard. If you don't believe what God says, well, you—I uh, don't know what to say at that point. <laughs> Somebody comes in and says, "Well, I just don't believe that the Bible's true," and I just, uh, but I, but I want God to try to fix me. No, don't do that. Okay, <clears throat> not supposed to be a brawler or a striker, right? Amen. <clears throat> but sometimes you just that kind of instinctively comes up. <laughs> but I'll tell you this: you, you got to believe that the Bible says it's true. And we're either going to say God's not God, and His Scripture isn't holy. And deny it all and live the life of a reprobate humanist atheist. Or we're going to say, Lord, I need you. First Peter chapter four, verse one and two, he says, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Here's your armament. Here's how you're going to battle this on a day-to-day basis. Here's how you're going to fight when the temptation comes. For he hath suffered in the flesh that ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. There's the problem. God just gets right to the heart of the matter. The reason why that it becomes a uncontrollable sin is because you're living your life in the flesh to your own lust. But you have to change, and there will be some suffering involved with it, to follow in the will of God. But I'm going to have... So what? But you don't know that. Does it matter? There's your will and there's God's will. And Peter's pointing it out right here. And you got to make a decision on which one you're going to choose. He saved you so specifically that you would cease from it. He, he wants you to stop sinning. Do we continue? In sin, Romans, he says, God forbid. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to transform. You have to change the way you think. You have to engage in this mentality of, I'm not going to live according to my own lust. 
I'm going to live for the will of God. Everything I'm going to do is be associated with the will of God. I'm going to follow the will of God. I'm going to go after the will of God. I'm going to know what the will of God is. In order to know the will of God, you got to know the word of God. Don't know the word of God, you're not going to know the will of God. And you're going to continue in the same sins. There is no excuse. There's no one thing that comes about to when it comes to these difficult and entrenched sins in our lives. You know, we, 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 we come up with all sorts of excuses to get rid of them. To get rid of the conviction. To get rid of the guiltiness. To push it off. But the fact is, is that God has said, no. It goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He's given you a means of escape. What's the means of escape? His Word. His will. His Holy Spirit. Just do that. You don't have to fall into the temptations. You don't have to go after them. You go after them because you want to. That's the problem. And I love that, I love that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Why? Because it says that God is faithful. He knows that we have a hard time being faithful, right? So he says, I'll be faithful. I'll give you a way out. I'll give you my word. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. I'll give you everything you need. This is why we have these issues that we have. You know, and the problem is, is we often, as I just talked about and I opened with Jeremiah chapter 9, I want to close with this. Go over to the book of Job. <clears throat> Job chapter 9. Remember when Nathan came to Dan, or David and... Uh, told him the story about the guy that took the neighbor's sheep. He was using it to kind of show exactly what David had done. What did David do? He condemned himself with his own mouth. He says, that man needs to be killed. Now, what did Nathan say? Thou art the man. Job, Job chapter 9, verse 20. <clears throat> he says, if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I'm perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Now, who called Job perfect? God did. Job knew enough not to call himself that. He let God decide the perfectness. He let God decide that. He knew that if he tried to justify anything, his own self, his own mouth would condemn him. And that's often the case. We try to justify ourselves when conviction comes. We try to justify ourselves when guiltiness comes. And we want to get rid of it. And we try to say, well, I did that because this person did this. Well, that's never a reason to do anything. Because again, it goes back to that whole concept, if one person jumps off a bridge, do you all jump off a bridge? Well, if you're a lemming, yes, that's what you do. But God didn't create us to be mindless beasts. You're a new creature, created in Christ Jesus, under good works. Do them. Do them. Our own mouths, our own sin will, con- if you will, convict us and condemn us. Uh, it will, it will show us exactly where we are. A lot of times, we just have to listen to what we're saying. And if we listen to what we're saying and we compare it to what the Word of God says, we'll find very clearly we have got to change. We have got to change. Next week we'll kind of move on uh, a little bit more, uh, move on from our next, move on to the next subject, start talking about uh, uh, correction in itself.
There's a process. There's a way we go about doing things. Uh, that correction process has uh, many steps, many phases. Uh, some we can have happen quickly. It all depends on how willing and yielding we are to the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, we got to go through some of those that uh, are going to be uncomfortable. But we still have to follow through with all of them. But the Word of God is very clearly put it here to give us that correction, to show us. All right, this is what you did. We know you did. This is what was wrong. We know you, this is what you did. Now let's do what's right. How do we correct it? How does it get fixed? We'll find out more about that, Lord willing, next week. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again, Lord, that we have this opportunity to be here and again hear from your word. I pray, Lord, that as we've looked at the scriptures and we've uh, heard very clearly what they say to us, that, Lord, we would uh, just understand these things. The Lord would use them in such a way that would uh, glorify and praise you and and, uh, and give you honor for all that we do. And that, Lord, we would seek to do your will. And, Lord, we know that it's a struggle in our lives frequently. But, Lord, we just pray that uh, as we continue to draw near to you, and that as you are faithful to us, that, Lord, we would just hear that voice of the Holy Spirit, we'd hear the voice of your word, we'd respond accordingly with a soft and tender heart, not in defiance against you, but Lord, in a yielded, submissive way, because of how much you've loved us and our demonstration of love back. Thank you again, Lord, for this time and opportunity that we've had. I ask and pray all of this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.